My guest this week is a writer, humorist, editor, and podcaster who has written many of the funniest books to come out in the last decade. From Stinker Let's Loose to Randy the Fall, the Full and Complete Unedited Biography and Memoir of the Amazing Life and Times of Randy S., to Passable in Pink, to Slouches the Novelization, he definitely satirizes tropes of movie genres. His two books, Poking a Dead Frog and Here's the Kicker, attempt to pick the brain of the greatest comedy writers of all time. His new novel, Passing on the Right, the Skippy Baddison story, was just released. It's a privilege to welcome Mr. Mike Sachs. Hello, sir. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for doing this. The first question I always ask everybody is, who were your comedy influences when you were growing up? Yeah. Well, I would say uh, a few. Um, some you might not even look at as being comedians. I just found them funny, and that would be, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Nabokov, Richard Yates, um, Borges, a lot of these uh, so-called serious, Flannery O'Connor. Um, I was a huge reader, so it was really books at first, uh, Woody Allen's books, David Sedaris, Mark Lehner. Miro Marco. Uh, as far as TV, it was mostly SNL and Late Night with David Letterman, particularly Chris Elliott. When Chris Elliott was on doing characters, that's really what I loved. It just it sort of was like a shocking moment to me when I first saw that, because I had never seen anything like that before. You know, and then when I, was, when I got older, I would go back and I would look at older TV and I saw that it was uh, done, you know, even by his father, uh, Bob Elliott, Bob and Ray. Um, but it's the characters that I loved. And what I loved particularly about Chris Elliott was that he was half, he was scary as well as funny. I mean, I was scared of this character as a kid, the, the guy under the seats. There was like a craziness, a lunacy in, in his eyes. And really everything that I've written in a fictional sense, I think goes back to Chris Elliott uh, characters, because everything I write is under the guise of a character fiction-wise, anyway, you know, whether it's a uh, fake uh, author of a novelization to a movie that doesn't exist, I'm always doing it under the guise of a character, and with the new book, that's under the guise of a character as well. It's a, um, it's a memoir, that, a fake memoir from a fictional guy uh, who is very mediocre, and it was, it, you know, it's just fun for me to just sort of get in the mind of these characters and write in the first person. And to me, it's just like character acting. And it really is going back to what Chris Elliott did on these shows where it's funny, but there's also a deeper meaning, hopefully, and maybe a little bit spooky as well, a little scary. Were you a fan of uh, Andy Kaufman? Yeah, huge fan of Andy Kaufman. And, and that's really what these books uh, hark back to as well. You know, Andy Kaufman would do these characters and wouldn't break character. And in, in these books, like the new one, Passing on the Right, there is no, my name is not mentioned in there anywhere, nowhere. Um, and it confuses some people, but I think to do a character like that, I think that the way to do it is to do it like Andy Kaufman and never really give the audience a wink. You know, was he acting when he was, um, doing the professional wrestling? Was he acting when he came on stage as this character or that character? And there was never any like, hey, this is just me doing a gag. It was always full force. So these books, um, I, they're written in the first person. My name is nowhere to be seen. And if people confuse them with, with the real thing and don't know that I had any part in it, I'm just fine with that. So you're doing a good job. Yes, uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, I confuse people, including my father, who thought that 
uh, Sneaker Let's Loose, which was the novelization to a non-existent trucking movie from 1977, until the day he passed away, he thought, I couldn't convince him that it was a fake movie, that I had made it up. So on the one hand, it was, um, I did my job. I had produced this uh, non-existent movie that could have been real. On the other hand, if I'm confusing my father, then I'm confusing a lot of people. And it's, that confusion isn't always a good thing when you put out a book. You, you want the people to understand what you're doing. You went to Tulane? I went to, yes, Tulane in New Orleans, Louisiana. And what did you study there? I studied English uh, writing and English lit. And actually, one of my favorite books um, was uh, the <clears throat> book that took place down in New Orleans, Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. And John Kennedy Toole actually attended Tulane for a brief bit as a graduate student. And they had his um, papers there. And I read uh, Confederacy of Dunces in its initial form. And that made a big impact on me. That, that's a book that's really, uh, I think, is a work of brilliance. I don't know if it could be put out today. And it, the fact that it was put out at all, I think it's just a miracle. But um, that is one of my influences too, hugely, is, is that book. You do a lot of writing for magazines. That is, is it all comedic or? No, I mean, it, it's, it's either um, me, in, you know, I interview now for New Yorker and it's people whose work I admire and I play the straight role. I'm, it's not me being funny, it's me picking someone's brain. And that's actually a pet peeve of mine when someone interviews someone funny and they try to up, out uh, funny the person they're interviewing. You know, that's not my role. My role is to be the host. So in those interviews that I do, or if they're just articles, say, about a book I like or about a movie or a comedian, um, that's to me, me being straight. But there are, and I, it was mostly in the past when I did this, I would write humor for magazines. Um, now I'm sort of concentrating more on books, but it was just a way to get ideas out there and my name out there and a way to make some money. But there was a frustration in the end, which is why I kind of turned to books, is that I was being asked to do too many um, articles based on current news cycles. And for me, those that type of humor goes bad quickly. And it just wasn't interesting to me anymore. So I wanted to branch out and just do what I wanted uh, completely on my own. And that's when the first uh, humor book in my own style I, uh, came out. And that was about four years ago. Now, I had put out three or four books before that. And they were some were humor books, but that was always to make money, and that was through traditional publishing. This was sort of a break from that. This was like I'm going to do what I want to do, put it out, and I'll put it out as the equivalent of a record, a garage band, uh, band in the garage. Put it out, and if five people read it, that's just fine because I've I've done what I want to do, and that was really a schism for me about four or five years ago. That I don't really care to go through the traditional route of publishing. I'd rather just put it out myself, which is what you can do these days. And I think um, for humor, for the, for the written page, that's really the way to do it. If you go the traditional route, you're not going to put out anything of interest. Very rarely will you be able to do that. Your first book that garnered a lot of uh, praise was nonfiction when you interviewed, um, and here's the kicker. Right. That came out in 
about 12 years ago now, almost 13 years ago. And so that when I first put that book out, I that had been rejected. My idea was to interview comedy writers whose work I liked and I never saw being interviewed. You know, no podcast existed. No books about modern comedy really existed. It was mostly on SNL and your show of shows. And uh, I wanted to put out com uh, interviews with comedy writers whose work I grew up with. Uh, you know, people who wrote for Mr. Show or for Letterman. Um, and uh, that that was my purpose, just to be able to uh, put out a book that I would have loved to have read as a high school or college student. Uh, but it got rejected. The idea got rejected maybe 20, 25 times by different publishers. And it was only because I knew a guy at um, a small publisher in Ohio that he put it out, John Warner, who used to work for McSweeney's. So uh, it was only because of him, really, that that book came out. And I think it's, well, it surprised me, the success of it. I really thought it would just go out to a few thousand comedy geeks. But I think there was uh, an interest in that sort of thing that just didn't exist. Now, since I've done that, that was 13 years ago, you, you know, there's a million podcasts that interview comedy writers. I mean, it's, it's almost um, you know, it's shocking how many there are which I think is a great thing because that just didn't exist really when I first put out that book. And people ask me, am I going to put out a third book? My second interview book came out about five years after, and here's the kicker. And I, I don't really want to. I, I think it's. Um, I think people are doing it for me now. It's, it's out there. And I think there's almost too much competition, and I don't want to compete with uh, the, the books and the podcasts and everything else. So the second book I put out, Pokey and Dead Frog, I think will be my last interview book. A couple of people that I would always want to talk to, I just want to know what they were like. Uh, Buck Henry. Oh, he was the sweetest guy. And I actually, I wanted to co-write his memoir with him. I wanted him to write a memoir. And he, he was planning on it, he said, but passed away before he could put it out. But there's an example of someone who, um, whose work I absolutely loved. And he was just a really sweet guy who was a mensch, um, who still had projects brewing, you know, in the seventies and eighties. And that was really the quintessential type of subject I wanted to go after. Maybe someone who wasn't being interviewed, uh, that often. And I wanted just to do a quintessential interview. How did you become the success you became? Like what advice would you have for those who are getting into comedy writing? not only what to do, but what not to do, what to avoid. And just talking to him about his early years and writing uh, The Graduate, the screenplay for The Graduate, working on the early years of SNL, um, it was just a thrill. I mean, he was just a really, really nice guy. Another guy, Jack Handy. Great guy. And he's, a lot of people don't believe he exists because he uh, was so prolific and his name was really the, the only writer's name on SNL, you know, Jack Handy's Deep Thought. And he'd have other bits on there, Jack Handy's, you know, dot, dot, dot. But uh, he was another one, you know, wrote for Steve Martin and actually met Steve Martin in New Mexico years before either became well-known. Um, started off as a journalist um, and just one of those people who, uh, you know, I love his mind and his creativity. And he was super, super nice. I mean, he was just a great guy. And um, he's still putting out books now. He's actually putting them out by himself. He's self-publishing them, which I, I think is the way to go. 
So he was a great guy. You know, all these people that, whose work I like to be able to talk to them face to face and become friendly with them was a thrill. It was really fun. And Robert Smigel. Yeah, I mean, brilliant guy. His father was a dentist, as my father was. So we had that to talk about. He's just been involved with so many things and always did it for the right reasons. Um, and just a brilliant mind. I mean, everyone I talk to about him just lists him as one of the best sketch writers ever. And um, just very ahead of his time. Uh, he basically popular, popularized the uh, get a life uh, phrase years ago in an SNL uh, Star Trek uh sketch um he's just a brilliant guy and another case of just really a nice guy i mean he he's very heavily involved with charitable causes uh so for that alone i think he's to be commended i mean he's just one of the best in the night of too many stars that they have every year incredible i mean that's and you get some top talent in that and the fact that he does that I think he uh, he has a son who is on the autism spectrum. Um, it's just great. I mean, that to me is what comedy should be. You know, I've seen, this is what my new book is sort of about. It's about mean comedy, which I've been seeing on Fox and on other places where instead of going out there and doing comedy for the right reasons, uh, Jesse Waters say we'll go to Penn Station and mock the homeless people or go to Chinatown and mock Asians. That isn't the comedy that I like. And I don't think it's a comedy that will last. And the fact he's doing it isn't a huge surprise, I guess, but the fact that it's popular sort of surprised me. And that is really what this book is about. It's about a mean spirited, mediocre comedy writer and comedian who achieves success, but I think for the wrong reasons. It's a interesting premise. It's, it fits with the times because I know it just, by reading the um, short, you know, pieces that I, I yeah, I mean, to me, he's really like a Brett Kavanaugh type character meets a conservative comedian, and he's he's a type of person I grew up with outside DC, and very uh, entitled, and he represents really everything I see wrong in politics and comedy. So I sort of combine the two, and of course, he's involved in the end with the January sixth insurrection leading the charge to the Capitol. Um, so he's just that type of person who has millions of followers. Um, and, and to me, it's just a type of comedy that I despise. Uh, mean-spirited, goes after the wrong people. But I'm seeing a, uh, you know, a popularity in this type of comedy, which I've never really seen before. And it sort of depresses me and scares me. Which is way different than Don Rickles. Oh, that was totally different, right? Because they they oh, always draw that they always draw that comparison, which no, well, I Don Rickles—it's it, totally different thing. Don Rickles was a sweetheart in real life, and he would always say, "I mean, I don't know if his comedy would, if he performed it today, would certainly. I don't know if it, it would have aged well, but I always liked him, and he always made a point like this is just a character I'm playing. I'm playing an asshole. I love everybody." It's just shtick. And he'd go after himself just as much as anyone else. That was not mean comedy. That was, you know, comedy uh, attacking things from a different angle as a character. And I always liked that a lot. I thought he was good. I mean, obviously, he went too far as in certain, <laughs> certain times, which I think he admitted to. But that is not the comedy I'm talking about. I'm talking about the conservative type of comedy, going after those who 
don't deserve to be gone after, uh, whether they're poor, whether they're ethnic, or what have you. I, I just I see this comedy out there, and it's just I just don't understand it. I don't understand its success, uh, which I, I never really saw this type of success before. For it, um, it just didn't exist before. But I think it's the scary thing, and I think it's very telling of where we are now as a nation and politically. Yeah, I've never come across these this, so this is interesting for me because I've never actually seen. Yeah. I thought I thought you were talking about somebody like Dennis Miller, who is a very good is a very good comedian who became right wing. Well, that's part of it. I mean, I'm I'm perplexed by that. I don't think any comedy that is good, great, uh, will be conservative. I just, I don't think it's tailor made for that. And Dennis Miller, I think lost his mind after nine 11. And I can sort of understand that. And yeah, he was good. He was a good comedian. And I think he just lost the thread there, but there are others coming up who are not that, who didn't come up, uh, honing their comedic skills as much as honing their conservative values. Uh, and their meanness. Trey Crowder? Uh, well, I'm thinking of Jesse Waters and I also don't... Greg Gutfeld from Fox. I mean, that sort of thing. And also, even a Joe Rogan. I mean, not Joe Rogan so much, but uh, there are others who work satellite radio who come across as, you know, these working class conservatives and just are just total dickheads. I don't understand it, but uh, I think the success, the popularity, is something that cannot be ignored. There's a reason why these people are popular. And you don't put it with the same thing of, you know, the people that just go into YouTube and talk about the stuff that they see on the screen and have 10,000 and 10 million likes. Well, yeah, I mean, it depends on what they talk about. But, you know, in the past, there would at least have to be jokes and cleverness. But what I see now is just, Hey, don't you agree that we all hate liberals and that we all want to put them down and that we don't like the fact that we have to pass homeless people on our way into work and that people in Chinatown may have accents that annoy us and that we can make fun of them. It's just a level of comedy um, that I mean, it's to me, it's very immature. It's like, you know, 12 year olds uh, in on the school ground. Mm. But now doing it professionally, and it's just totally perplexing to me. I guess I'm lucky. I just, I just never have never heard of Jesse Waters until. Well, it's, it seems like you have good taste, quite frankly. I mean, you're going after the right people, and I think most comedy geeks do. And that's that's part of the thing about it too. You know, the people that we hung around with, and I'm sure your friends were like mine. We were just total comedy geeks. We would get together and watch old movies and sitcoms, and we love this stuff. The people who were bullies, the people who taunted us are now the people who are getting into comedy and we got into comedy to get away from these assholes yeah actually my my friends were really not into comedy i was just that was just me by myself <laughs> okay well you know the friends that you make in life are, are probably now comedy into comedy and into things that your friends weren't into i'd imagine you know you create you create the family and the friend group that you um maybe didn't have earlier in life and um, I'm sure you're befriending those whose um, whose uh, interests are uh, headed in the right direction. Are are you know, they're not into comedy to, to make fun of people. They're into oh. it just to laugh and have a good time and not go after any particular ethnicity or religion or anything. But I mean, that to me is just 
anti-everything of why I got into comedy, which was to me very inclusive. You know, if you are into certain things, um, it doesn't matter what you are, who you are. Um, it's just that you have a similar sensibility. And I just have never really seen people get into comedy for the wrong reasons before. And that, I think that's now happening, which is just, uh, it just bewilders me. I always thought it was democratic. You're funny or you're not, but you do need some luck. Oh, sure. And But I think also you need to have your lodestar in the right position where you used to. I think the best comedy, the best characters, whether it was Richard Pryor or any of the silent performers or any of the vaudeville performers were always in it uh, for the right reason. Um, and I think there's a goodness there. You know, Richard Pryor lived a difficult life, but there was a decency there. And he would never go after those, you know, punched down, as they say. Uh, I think he did it with love when he would you know, do these characters that he knew really well. Um, Lenny Bruce is the same way. Woody Allen's character is the same way. Charlie Chaplin, any of these classic characters. I mean, you can go back two, 3,000 years to these Greek plays. Then They're never mocking the homeless. They're always mocking, mocking the politicians, the people in charge, the tax, those who are taxing them. And I think that's the comedy that lasts. I don't think this type of comedy, I just can't imagine it would. I just, I just don't see that as ingrained in what is important in comedy and what will last the generations. That to me is what lasts. It's just good character that you can recognize. And there's a decency there uh, and not a meanness. One thing that differs between you and what I've read, you know, in your books and myself is, consider comedians as comedy writers because you know they do obviously they write their act they write jokes and you in an interview were saying that you you focused mainly on comedy writers right yeah then that gets overlooked a lot of times people say oh i loved your book with interviews with comedians well it wasn't with comedians some were comedians but my purpose was you know i would always be interested in the end scroll after a tv show or in the beginning of a movie, like who wrote this? How did you get into that career? How do you do this? And that is what I wanted to do, not just for TV and movies, but for books, for articles, for graphic novels, for stand up, for one person shows, for anything that's written behind the scenes. That's what interests me. Those who make a career out of this very difficult trade and often very lonely trade. And um, I just wanted to know how did they do it? I just, I had no idea as a kid. And I think there was a mystery for me. Um, and I think one of the things I wanted to get across with these books is that you can do it. It doesn't matter who you are, especially nowadays. You know, you can be in Ohio, you can be in India, you can be in Pakistan. It doesn't matter. And I, I've met comedy writers from Iran and it, we all, it's all the same sensibility. And I love that. And that you don't need to be a white Harvard lampoon writer to make it now. And you can make that connection. You can go from point A to point B. And the comedy is only better for that. And I love the fact that anyone can do it if you just work hard enough and if you have the skill set. Your book, Sex, Our Bodies, Are Junk, that was a basic parody of the famous 60s book, Our Body, Ourselves? Yes, but it was also um, character-based. So I co-wrote that with five of my friends, all comedy writers for Daily Show, The Onion, um, Conan, and each of us were characters with this fake uh, sex education-based association in Washington, D.C. So even that was character-based. And that, that, to me, is what I like. 
rather than doing a straight parody of a sex manual to bring in these five, six characters who know nothing about what they're talking about and just creating a backstory for each of them. These are the things that I'm going to buy because I'm going on trips that I'm just going to be reading on, on the airplane. Well, I would love to see the looks on the um, your seatmate's face when you pull out our bodies, our junk. Okay. <laughs> Can you make love in that gross little space between cars? Right. That was a book I was hired to do uh, for Believer magazine. And uh, it was Believer uh, readers to the Believer magazine would write in with questions and these comedy writers would answer them. So that's basically just a question and answer book with a lot of great writers answering like George Saunders and uh, all these top level comedians. But that is really a book that I was just a hired hand for. Okay. It just seemed very interesting with the names of the people that were answering the questions. Yeah. I mean, th these were uh, top level people. I mean, that, that they did that, not for me, but because of their love for McSweeney's and Dave Beggars and Believer. And that was co-written and co-edited with my friend Eric Spitznagel, who's the comedy writer and editor. Poking a Dead Frog, your second book of interviews. How hard was it to get Mel Brooks? Because I've heard it's very hard. I don't think it's as hard as you might think. Uh, it did take a while for me to get him on the phone. And I eventually talked to him a few times. One time he was on his way to the dentist, which I found a very Mel Brooks thing to be doing. Um, once he's on the phone, he gives it his all, and uh, some of the stories are the same. That was really the interview subject my parents were most excited about because for them, Mel Brooks was like a god. I mean, they loved Mel Brooks. And um, out of all the things that I've done, out of all the people I've interviewed, I think they were most proud of that one. But, you know, again, here was a guy who didn't need to talk to me, who did talk to me. Um, he wasn't selling anything, and he wasn't promoting anything. He was just talking about his comedy. Um, and just a super sweet guy, very much a mensch. Um, just reminded me of my relatives, you know, just a nice guy who just happens to be brilliant and very, very, uh, you know, he, he's always been focused on success and, and uh, pushing himself. And like even now in his 90s, he is pushing himself. He, he's never sitting on his laurels, which was one of the lessons that I wanted to get across. Here's someone who in his 90s has had a lot of success and he's still fighting and he's still out there struggling and he, uh, yeah, he doesn't get everything accepted. Um, and if you want to do comedy, write comedy, you have to really stay strong and keep on down the road no matter how successful you've been and never really give up. And that, that's the case. Mel Brooks is the case of that. He's just never given up. Guy who would be, I would just stop my podcast if, if I ever got him and said, okay, I'm done. I don't need to do it anymore. Jim Downey. Oh, that guy was not easy because at that time he didn't have email or even a fax machine that I knew about. I had to go through a few people. But once I got him on the phone, he was just the best. I mean, he was amazing and such a perfectionist. I mean, we went over questions and answers endlessly and I could see the attention to detail that he gave to his sketches was so evident uh, when he was doing this interview with me and just someone who's been involved with some of the greatest political sketches or all sketches dating back to pretty much the beginning of SNL just a font of knowledge uh, and super super smart that so that that's one of the reasons I put that interview first in the book was that this guy to me is everything 
that you want in a comedy writer. Many people may not know his name, but if I know he's very modest, but I'm telling you the, the um, sensibility that he brought to SNL was a huge factor in its success. And I'm like you, like I would rather get his autograph than say, you know, whoever the, the uh, musical group was that on that night, like his work means so much to me. And I really think it means a lot to those who know anything about comedy. Did you find that if you mentioned something that wasn't a big hit or something that they thought was better than most people, that they would talk to you more and be more excited about? Yeah, well, personal favorites. If I happen to agree with them on what they felt was overlooked and and was their personal favorite, yeah, they would really connect. Because a lot of times they, they, they're not asked about certain things. They're asked about the same things over and over again. So one of the things I did was a tremendous amount of research. And if I found that they wrote something that I really liked and maybe not a lot of other people did, that didn't keep it out of the interview. I mean, if anything, it made me want to put it in even more because the, the stories they told were that much more uh, interesting and they were that much more excited to talk about these sort of forgotten projects that uh, I wanted to bring to a new generation of comedy lovers. And uh, that's, those are the questions they really appreciated much more than any questions about their biggest hits. I talked to Dave Thomas last week and I was asking him about the new show. And oh, no. I thought it was, I, I have them on, I have them on uh, a USB. They're not bad. It's not bad at all. And there's a lot of moments of genius on that show. And he, that's what he was talking about. Yeah, he must have liked that. I mean, uh, the fact, I mean, just the fact that their work hasn't disappeared, I think means a lot to people. Even if you have the success that he has, you know, a lot of comedic success, there's always sketches, books, movies that didn't hit. And I think it bothers creators. And when you, they find someone who was affected by these works that they really love, you know, oftentimes they'll really come to life in an interview. And that's really when the interview just kind of sparks and really gets exciting. Ever pick up a phone and just call somebody? Or was it always email? Or... No, I, well, one time I did, and that was uh, Peg Lynch, who was 96 or 95 when I talked to her. She created Ethel and Albert, one of the first sitcoms ever created, uh, first for radio, then television. And it was really Seinfeld before Seinfeld. It was really a show about nothing, but really about everything. Um, and I, my point, my goal was to interview long ago comedy writers for radio. And I had a li I reached out to someone who ran a fanzine for, for early comedy radio, and I asked him if any writers were still alive. He, can't, he said, I don't know, but here, here's a list of 10 or 15. You should try these. And everyone had passed away except for this one woman, uh, Peg Lynch, Margaret Lynch. And I called up the town where she lived. I found out where she lived, and I talked to the town, someone at the town council. And I said, you don't know Margaret Lynch, do you? She goes, oh, yeah, Peg Lynch. I said, is Peg still alive? She goes, yeah, I'll give you her number. So I called her out of the blue. And we ended up talking for like an hour. And there's a case of someone who hadn't been interviewed in maybe 30, 40 years. And I think she was a bit confused and bewildered why her early her work had been forgotten, maybe. <clears throat> and she was just a total character, the sweetest person, fascinating history. And that was sort of finding a pearl, you know, at the bottom of the sea. 
just scavenging around. I mean, I couldn't believe uh, it, it's very rare when that happens. But that was a case of um, me reaching out blindly and just and just finding someone who uh, was a big part of the book. I mean, she's one of the favorite interviews for most people, including myself. She's since passed away. She would have been like 101 now, I think. Or 102, 103. Well, here's what people don't realize about writers. They're very lonely. They want, and they want distraction. And they want to talk about themselves because they're never asked about their work. So when you're reaching out to, say, celebrities, it's not going to be easy to just call someone. When you're reaching out to a writer, there's a pretty good chance you'll reach out to that person or at least they'll get the message. If they don't get back to you, maybe it's not the type of person you want to talk to anyway. If they do get back to you, if they're met, uh, mentioned enough to get back to you, there's a good possibility that they're open enough to get a good interview. And those are the really the writers that I was looking for. Uh, I heard you mention that you had a tough time getting women to say yes. That is true, sadly. I mean, I was criticized in some areas for not having more women, especially with the first book. Uh, the problem was, I reached out, I can tell you, to every major comedy writer, female comedy writer out there. And a lot of times I'd never heard one way or another, or I just heard a no. I mean, I still haven't re received word back from Tina Fey, uh, yes or no, if she wants to be interviewed. So there was a frustration at that time um, that I couldn't get more. But you can't force someone to do an interview, you know, you can't. And you can't interview people who uh, don't want to be interviewed. You just can't do it. You can't get a good interview that way. So there has to be some give and take. So there was a frustration that there weren't um, more more females, especially with and here's the kicker. I, you know, I had Marilyn Suzanne Miller and Rosie Schuster together. Great writers. Love those two. Yeah. And they were great. And yeah. Margaret Oberman. Yeah. And a couple of others and it's like well people that wrote for you know women that wrote for Sarah Live over the years many of them they never got back what, to it's difficult i don't know what it i think there are fewer women writers still unfortunately and they may be asked for more interviews i think there's also an ego issue i think you have to have an ego to be interviewed and talk about yourself and i think maybe men may have more of that ego i, I don't know what it is um but there was many cases where I said to someone who was criticizing there not being enough females, I said, well, name a female writer that you would have wanted in the book. And they would have you said a name. And I said, well, I asked them. They never got back to me. I asked them multiple times. Or I asked her and she said no. Or I asked her and she was too busy. I mean, so I wanted these. I, I didn't want it to be a, a men's club. Right. Uh, I didn't. And um it just became what it became. I mean, there's only so much control I have. Look, I'm know? sure you asked Ann Beats. Well, I did ask Ann Beats, and she said yes, and it was the worst interview I conducted. She was a maniac. Um, we ended the interview after 15 minutes. You know, so it also, you know, not everyone I interviewed made the book. It it, it really depended on how into it they were, and 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 if I did a good job. In a lot of cases, I didn't do a good job. So I interviewed twice as many people as made the books and half of them uh did not make it and ann bates is a uh beats is a an example of uh something i don't know what it's an example of but she was not uh, a good interview subject and that did not make the book i booked her and she died so i never got to well i think you're uh, lucky in a sense because she was not a nice person and um 
had a real chip on her shoulder and she was not, I don't know why she says yes to interview or said yes, because she was not willing to give interviews and then would not only, you know, not answer the questions, but she would be demeaning to me. It was the only interview where I basically said, all right, it's over. And I hung up. I'm very, very rare that I would talk to people. Usually if it didn't work out, it was my fault or they were humble or modest or tired or what have you. Very rarely was it over meanness and her, she was just mean. But she's the character in um, the Carrie Fisher character in 30 Rock, the crazy comedy writer that Tina Fey has to show around town. I like the novelizations that, that you uh, write because I collected those when I was a little kid because they had Family Ties had, novel, had novelizations and I think Happy Days and uh, Growing Pains, I think possibly had one. And they yeah, were all, all those shows. I loved them. And they were all scholastic books that you could buy from school. Yeah, and they, there was a talent to putting those together. These writers were good. And um, for me, this was before you could own DVDs. I mean, this is how I relive these movies. Um, and I loved doing that, whether it was uh, Indiana Jones or Star Wars, or less Star Wars. I really wasn't into sci-fi, but uh, horror type of books um i loved or even like even smoking the bandit which i loved uh i just loved rereading them and reliving them and a lot of these novelizations were based on early versions of the script so you would sometimes see a version that didn't end up on the screen and that was exciting too like um pretty and pink the novelization ending is uh ducky and andy uh, the molly ringwell character end up together that did not happen in the movie it did happen in the movie, but they changed it because of audience reaction. So it's like a look into another world and a, behind, a peek behind the scenes, which I always love. And to this day, I collect novelizations. They're not putting them out, but I can still find old ones. Um, and it just brings me to a pop culture past uh, that I grew up with that doesn't really exist anymore. Were writers generous in showing you their early drafts? Well, I've seen early versions of scripts, which is great. Um, and I, you know, in the case of Paul Feig, whom I interviewed, whose work I love, uh, not just the books, but his movies and Freaks and Geeks, which I think is one of the best shows ever. He sent me the character Bible for Freaks and Geeks, which was like 70 pages. And the amount of detail in there was just astonishing, like what rock band each of the characters listened to. And it really showed me how detailed these worlds are that you have to create. Uh, so that was a thrill, I mean, to be able to see that uh, for a show that meant so much to me. And it's just like, uh, there's a case of just a guy, total mensch, sweet guy. And I really do think that the decency that he shows in everyday life comes through in his comedy. He's just a good guy and his, his movies are decent and nice. And it doesn't mean that they're not raunchy, they don't, they don't contain raunchy bits. But he's not mocking anyone. It's no, it's just a, a comedy done for the right reason, and I think he's a he's a perfect example of that. The audiobooks that were done from your novelizations, the first one was done from I heard you say from a guy who um, liked liked the book and uh, wanted to do it. Yeah, Eric Martin, Eric Jason Martin, who's a narrator and producer, he got in touch with me. I had done an interview with him years before for a podcast this american wife 
And uh, he got in touch with me and said, can I have the rights to this book? I was like, sure. Um, he wasn't paying me anything. I just thought, okay, well, you know, if you can do anything, great. And two months later, he has the full cast, John Hamm to play Stinker, Ray Seahorn from Better Call Saul to play the girlfriend, Andy Richter, Paul F. Tompkins, John DiMaggio, Joe DiMaggio. Um, it was just amazing, really, what he put together. And it was a good example and a good lesson that uh, I could have pitched that book and that audio project forever, and then never would have gotten made. So oftentimes, it just comes down to just doing it and putting it out there. And when you do something and you put in the work, you put in the time, you may not be paid for it. But if you put it out there, good things tend to happen. And that's the case where if I had not written that book, none of that would have happened. And it was only because I wrote it for no money over six to eight months, not knowing whether it was going to work or not, but just having something tangible to show people. I think that that was a very important lesson for me. It's important just to keep moving and to produce rather than pitch. I mean, I could spend my life pitching and I don't want to do that. I want to produce and have something out there on the shelf. Whether it works or not, I don't know. But as long as it's out there, I'm, I'm happy. That was a question I was going to ask you. Um, are you writing things, several things at one time, or you just go into one thing and then you go to another? Do yeah, it's always sequential. It's just a matter of scheduling. I have four books coming out in 2022. Right. Some Two are reprints, and two are uh, just they happen to be out. But I, I never really uh, – I usually write – uh, a big project and then while doing the big project work on smaller projects like interviews and such but I, I usually won't work on two big projects at the same time because it's really a matter of getting into that character and just you know like a character actor would and not wanting to switch to another character just wanting to remain true and i'm just you know so ocd i'd rather just finish it and and put it away neatly and then move on to the next project rather than doing it scattershot no when you're like when you're writing passing on the right, do, do your family members have to call you Skip? Well, my family members don't know what the hell I'm doing, quite frankly, and I don't think they'll be reading this book. Um, but uh, like my girlfriend, now she doesn't have to call me Skip. It, it's uh, it, I can end it at the end of the day. I'm no longer Skippy. I'm, I'm Mike, uh, okay, which so is a good thing because he's a horrible person. You're not Daniel, Daniel Day Lewis. Hell no! I don't understand why that's even necessary. I mean, I think if, if I were an actor, I would go in and out of character easily. It's very easy to get into these characters and very easy to leave them. But I, I don't understand uh, the obsessiveness about that. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, these characters come easily to me. So maybe they're a part of me anyway. You know, this my asshole part is maybe Skippy. I would like to talk to you, if you don't mind, about OCD, because I have OCD and you have OCD. Yeah, sure. Um what are your, um, if you don't, uh, I don't know if it brings it up. I don't want to. No, I, no, no. I, I'm fine talking about any of it. I've talked about it publicly. No, because sometimes if you talk about a tick, you may bring it back if it's one that hasn't gone away. Yeah, I know what you mean, but I have it anyway. So talking about it doesn't make it worse. Now, I've had it since I was 11 and I didn't know what it was and it was pre-internet and so I felt very alone with it. But I think now those who are coming up with it can get help, the help they need a lot earlier. I didn't get help for years and years. And I think it's normal, especially among creative types and especially among comedy writers. I think the majority of comedy writers have anxiety, depression, and OCD. And I've seen it across the board. I would say up to 75% of comedy writers have OCD. 
So uh, to me now, it's something that it's an energy that if I funnel it, um, I can funnel it into creative aspects rather than circling the drain and not leaving the room for a year. It's an energy. And if you use that energy in the right ways, like for me, I have to write every day or I have to move forward. Uh, you can use it to your benefit, but it did take a long time to train myself to do that. And also I'm on heavy medication. I'm on Wellbutrin and Prozac, which helps. So what is your, what are your symptoms? What, what are your, how okay. do you experience it? Okay. Some of it is like mispronunciations, um, weird ways, people inflections. Um, they just stick in my head and they keep and they just don't leave. And it'll make me want to say it over and over again. So, so, yeah. so like, it's like, I'm not trying to be like, I'll give you an example. I have my co-teacher. Right. Well, that, that's the obsessiveness. I think this Tourette's is connected in some ways where like, I will need to say something that no one else is saying, even though I know they're thinking it and I know it's inappropriate, mm. but I have to get it out. And, and it's just an obsessiveness. I only have that in temp, and, like in temple. <laughs> right. Well, or, or in situations where you shouldn't be shouting out something like yeah. in a work meeting or something. Yeah. That's when it, that's when OCD kicks in. And, um, you know, right now, as it, when you're in synagogue and the cantor is droning on and on, this would be a bad time to yell, you know, like blow your nose or you, you suck or something. And that's when it, that's when it hits home for me, the least appropriate time. And I don't like hurting people and I don't like saying these things, but there's, there's a, a, a obsession to, and a need to I think thoughts that I wouldn't normally, yeah. I think. One time I was at my about. friend's house and I was just, I never saw his parents before. And I'm, my head's like, God, your mother's ugly. God, your mother's ugly. God, your mother's yep. ugly. And I'm like, yeah, right. And you never, you don't want to say it because you're not that type of person. I mean, I think part of the reason that it bothers people with OCD is because they never would say it. They're thinking thoughts that really bother them. And they're not the type of person to say that. Um, right. And I think people like, is almost like like a Donald Trump would be like somebody that I wouldn't want to be, but it, it's got to be easier to live that way. Right, but he's also an asshole, and we're not assholes. No, but I know, but just let, saying everything you feel has got to be liberating. Yeah, I guess so, and that, that's part of the joy of writing these books, that I, I get to say things I wouldn't, you know, it's like being a ventriloquist. My dummy gets to say things that I don't mm. get to say. These characters get to say, you know, Skippy is an asshole and he says things that I never would say and often don't agree with, but just the, the freedom of being able to say this stuff, it is a freedom. And I see what you're saying. And I think that's a, a reason why a lot of people like Trump. They say things, he says things out loud that people are afraid to say and probably should be afraid to say, but there is a freeing nature of it um, that you, you're not in the civilized society, you just are not allowed to do this. And right. I'm, I don't. Reason. I don't agree with him, but it looks like if, if I could just have the ability but not use it, then I I'd be you know a happier person. But who knows? He's right. A, but he's not a happy looking guy. So he's a miserable fuck who has no sense of humor. And like most people with no sense of humor, he's miserable and not as intelligent as he thinks he is. I've heard about a few people that approached Mel Brooks out of the blue. And uh, said, I want to write comedy, and, and he gave them jobs. And that's a great thing. Yeah, I love um, that. Norman Steinberg. Yeah. 
He, yeah, all these guys. And then there's another writer. Uh, he's a script doctor. I'm forgetting his name. Very funny writer. He went out and as a kid went on the set of um, of the uh, Young Frankenstein, Frankenstein, and he got a job. I mean, event, oh, a- Alan Spencer. Oh, I was going to say, is that, are you talking about Alan Spencer? Yeah, great guy. Great I'm, friends guy. With him, I'm friends with him on Facebook. Yeah, he's a good guy. You should interview him. That's a I, fascinating story. This, getting right. getting George Meyer to do anything is 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 a uh, not an easy task, but it's worth it. He's brilliant. Oh yeah, and you and I love that sketch. Roy's food repair. Oh yes, he talks about that in the uh, in the interview he does with me. I think Jack Handy co-wrote that. Was that was that the one? I don't know if he co-wrote it, but I just you know it was, it was from the new show. Yeah, yeah. And there's this really good sketch with John Larroquette and Dana Carvey, where John Larroquette dies and Dana Carvey is his angel, and he, and he that was a really good sketch too from '86. Yeah, he's, he's one of the most brilliant comedy writers, George Meyer. But yeah, mm-hmm. tough, tough guy to get. It. I think he's just a modest guy; he doesn't like talking about himself. But it's cool is that, like you know, with the podcast, which I've I listened to yours, and that, that's a really good podcast as well. Oh, thanks. You know who's a really good guy? You, who was on your podcast? He was on my podcast. Arthur Meyer. Oh, Arthur's the best. Yeah, he lives around the corner from me, and we'll occasionally meet up for lunch or breakfast. I love him. We. I found out that he has the same weird thing that I have. He knows the date, host, and musical guest. Yeah. Of, I could do that too. Yeah. That is amazing. Uh, yeah, you, you say uh, you put out an, an SNL date and he can say who hosted. Right. And I thought I was the only one who could do that. And then there's always someone else who could do what you do. No, it's crazy because everyone thought I was. Have you reached out to him? No, I, he was on my podcast. Oh, good. Yeah, he's a sweet guy. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's very nice. And uh, yeah. Did you get Chris Elliott? Well, yeah, I'm friendly with Chris. He's another guy who doesn't like talking about himself. He's a modest guy. And I think I embarrass him by saying how much I love him and his work. He's just a modest uh, dude, but sweet. Great guy. I I, I met his daughter when she was on Siren Live. Yeah, and uh, his other daughter, Bridie, is a really funny writer and director. Yeah, he... Um, the album that she did, she did with Arthur came out the day. I <laughs> yeah. The Beatles. Yeah. We were talking yeah. about, that was pretty funny. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. And Oh, it was a pleasure. I mean, I'll always talk about comedy with anyone and, uh, this was fun. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, thanks. Comedy people like myself. I'm a big fan of yours. I did before I even read your book 12 years ago. <laughs>